as he looked at this, would you say it's half full or half empty? This isn't a test, it's just a, it's more of a rhetorical question. But is we usually, I'm sure all of us have heard that phrase, like, well, you're looking at the glass half full or half empty? And we've got this situation in your life uh, that maybe isn't going as you planned or as you expected or as you wanted, much like we see in Joseph's life. Um, but what are you, how are you going to look at it? Are you going to look at it as half full? Or are you going to look at it as half empty? Are you going to look at it for what is there, what God is doing? Or are you going to look at it for what isn't there and what God isn't doing or what this person in your life isn't doing? And we can use it for situations, but we can also use it um, to evaluate ourselves. How do you think about yourself? Do you think of yourself as a person who's half full? Like, uh, well, I made it... Uh, I made it halfway there, and I'm really proud of that. Or I, you know, I didn't get as far as I wanted to, but hey, look at how much I did accomplish. Or do you always measure yourself by what's missing? Uh, well, you know, I messed this up, or you know, I did it with bad motives, or I missed this part. I didn't get quite right. And do you evaluate yourself half empty for what's missing, or do you evaluate yourself half full for what you did do and what you uh, did accomplish? And I tend to see myself as, as a glass half empty that I often looking and seeing like, okay, well, you know, maybe I did 99% of it right, but there's that one part, you know, and that's what everyone else is going to be thinking about too. And I, you know, I think other people are seeing like looking at the empty part of whatever I did and seeing like, well, you know, could have, didn't quite get it full. You know, there's 1% he missed there. And so, you know, get evaluated on all that. And so I have a, a very strong um, inner critic in my head. So how about you? How do you see yourself? Do you evaluate yourself as half full as from on what you have accomplished, what you have done, and the strides you have made? Or do you evaluate yourself for what you failed to do and what you fell short on doing? And the better question, perhaps, how does God see us? Does God evaluate half full or does he evaluate half empty? Does he see us for what is there or does he just see us for what's missing? Like, well, all these things are missing and so... I'm going to look at you based on that. Or does he see us for what is there? We'll come back to that question later. As this week we're continuing our series in the book of Genesis uh, in, called Joseph, Becoming a Blessing, these last chapters of Genesis, 37 to 50. And this family that we've been following has been through a lot. Jacob, uh, the father, I mean, just in 37 through 50 has been for, through a lot. Go back and read chapters 26 through 36, and you'll see he was through a whole bunch of other stuff, too, that he's just had this life with ups and downs and twists and turns, and he's uh, really been through it. <coughs> but we see Jacob, the father, grieve the loss of one of his wives um, and of his son, Joseph. And then he discovered, 20 years later, that Joseph is actually still alive, and his other sons fake his death. And so Jacob, that's what Jacob's been through. I mean, can you imagine that? You think your son is dead, and then you just find out that your other kids faked his death and sold him off into slavery, human trafficking. And the 11, sons, 11 other sons have made two trips from Canaan to Egypt to get food because their families are starving in a famine. They don't have any food. And so they've made two trips to a different country to go get food so their families can live. And we see they've been living with this this guilt of what they did to their brother, younger brother Joseph all that long ago, thinking like God, you know, around every corner, God is punishing them. Eventually they find out that the man from whom they've been buying food is none other than the brother that they sold into slavery. And this is just looking at Jacob and the brothers in this story. Joseph has been the main focus. Joseph was sold into slavery, human traffickers, by his brothers at the age of 17 because his brothers hated him. 
and we're jealous of him. And he ends up in Egypt and goes to a slave, from a slave to a prisoner to uh, a high official in, uh, for Pharaoh overseeing their food supply. And then his brothers come down, stand before him. They don't recognize him. And he tests them to see, are these the same brothers that I had before? <coughs> and he has a mix of emotions as he does so. And eventually he reveals himself to them and tells them, okay, I see, you guys did this evil thing to me, but I see God's hand in all of it. I see how God has taken your evil and he's now used it for good. And he says, that evil you did to me all those years ago has now put me in the position, God has used it to put me in a position to save you and my, my, the rest of my family. So he's like, you guys did evil to me, but God used it to put me in a position to save all of you so that we wouldn't die in this famine and we wouldn't be homeless. And so he sends his brothers back to Canaan, bring our... Bring our dad down and bring your families down. I'm going to provide for you down here in Egypt. And now they've settled in Egypt. In our passage today, Genesis 48 to 49, we're nearing the end of the book. Chapter 50 is the last chapter. We'll finish that next week, and then we'll do a Christmas series leading up to Christmas. Uh, But here, in these chapters, we read of Jacob's death. The patriarch of this family dies. But before he does so, he gathers his sons around him, and he says a final blessing on their lives, which is, Kind of a mix of like evaluating what he sees in them and predicting this is what's going to be come true of you based on your character. And also it seems like there's this mix of God's kind of giving them this insight of what's going to happen with this family down the road. But he wants to pass down the blessing of God onto them. This was the blessing that God gave to his grandfather Abraham. And then when Abraham's about to die, he passes it on to his son Isaac, who is Jacob's dad, and God himself appears to Abraham. God himself appears to Isaac. <coughs> and then Isaac passes it on to Jacob, and God appears to Jacob as well. And so God has said, I want to use this family. I want to bless this family. I want to use them as a, a channel to pour blessing back into the world. And he says, I'm going to make you into a great nation. I'm going to be with you, and I'm going to give you this land, this land of Canaan, which is today... I mean, modern-day Israel is part of it, but that region, of the Palestine region, is the land that God said, I'm going to give this to you. This is going to be your inheritance. I'm giving it to you. And in some ways, God is recreating the land of Eden. It's going to be this, or the Garden of Eden. It's going to be this place where God is with these people. He's guiding these people, and he's giving them all this land and providing for them. And through them, God is going to bring blessing back to the world. And when we started this series, we talked about how God works in us so that he can work through us. And a lot of these characters, you see that they're supposed to be a blessing to other people, but oftentimes they don't end up being a blessing to other people because they need this inner work done before they kind of get their pipes unclogged so that God's blessing can be something that comes to them and through them. They need to be this, have this inner transformation. We've seen some of the members of this family go on a transformative journey throughout these chapters, but some have stay the same. And as Jacob blesses them on his deathbed, we hear his evaluation of their lives and their character. So we're going to have to take this in two parts uh, around our big idea. So our big idea, if you like to write these things down, um, is as God's family, we must live worthy of our calling. As God's family, we must live worthy of our calling. As God's family, we must live worthy of our calling. And we're going to break the passage down, chapter 48 is going to cover as God's family. And chapter 49 is going to cover we must live worthy of our calling. And so let's, we're going to back up just a little bit. We read chapter 48. We're going to read chapter 47 starting in verses 27 through 31. 
setting the stage for what happens in 48. Chapter 47, verse 27. Thus Israel settled in the land of Egypt, in the land of Goshen, and they gained possessions in it, and were fruitful and multiplied greatly. And Jacob lived in the land of Egypt 17 years, so the days of Jacob, the years of his life, were 147 years. And when the time drew near that Israel must die, he called his son Joseph and said to him, If now I have found favor in your sight, put your hand under my thigh, and promise to deal kindly and truly with me. Do not bury me in Egypt, but let me lie with my fathers. Carry me out of Egypt and bury me in their burying place. He answered, I will do as you have said. And he said, Swear to me. And he swore to him. Then Israel bowed himself upon the head of his bed. And we're going to see at the end of chapter 49 that Jacob does die. And so we have him saying, I'm about to die. Don't bury me here. Take me back to the land of Canaan. That's going to be our land. I want my you know, grave site to be up there where we're going to be living. He has this faith that even though we're in Egypt now, like, take me there because that's where we're going to be. And then at the end of this chapter, we're going to see that he actually does die after he talks to his sons. And so chapter 48, uh, we read it. Let me um, summarize. Jacob gives a little uh, summary of his life. God Almighty appeared to me at Luz in the land of Cain and then blessed me. And then he, tell, and he tells him, Behold, I will make you fruitful, multiply, and make you a company of peoples, and give this land your offspring after you for an everlasting possession. So there's the summary of what he's going to do. I'm going to make you fruitful, multiply you, make you a company of people, making this great nation give this land to you. It's a place for you to live. And then in verse 5, uh, so scan there in chapter 48, verse 5. And he says, he's talking to Joseph. He calls Joseph to him, and he's talking to him. He says in verse 5, And now your two sons, were, who were born to you in the land of Egypt before I came to you in Egypt, are mine. Ephraim and Manasseh shall be mine, as Reuben and Simeon are mine. And the children that you fathered after them shall be yours. They shall be called by the name of their brothers and their inheritance. What Jacob does here, uh, what's interesting, um, is you may, we may think like, oh, Israel, it's all, it's like you know, 100% Jewish, 100% Hebrew, um, but actually Joseph's two sons are half Egyptian. He marries an Egyptian woman, so they're half Hebrew, half Egyptian. And so now two of the tribes of Israel are half, you know, half Egyptian as they... Uh, have babies and have more half Egyptian. I don't, actually, I don't know how the math in that works, but you know, you get what I'm saying. Um, but he, Jacob here is saying, like, okay, I have these 11 sons, or I have these 12 sons, but Joseph, I'm not going to name one of the tribes of Israel after Joseph. Actually, I'm adopting Ephraim and Manasseh, and he brings Ephraim and Manasseh, and he says, they're going to be my sons just as these other two guys are my sons, just as Reuben and Simeon are my sons. And so he adopts them and says, you're going to be my full sons, you're going to get a stake of the inheritance, just like everybody else is going to be portioned out to you, as if you were really my sons, that you came from me. And so he's got these, that's often called the, the half-tribe of Manasseh, um, because it's, there's no Joseph tribe, there's Ephraim and there's Manasseh, and they make up these 12 tribes. And then we see Jacob's confession of faith of what he sees uh, that his life has been like. And sometimes as you read the Jacob story, as we were going through it last year, it's like, uh, did this guy, when does he actually like really put his faith in God? It seems like there's one moment he does, but then he does something where it's like, maybe it's just the same old Jacob. Or maybe he's just kind of struggling to let go of, with, from, of some of his patterns. But here uh, is where I, he gives one of the strongest affirmations of faith uh, in this whole book. So chapter <coughs> 48, verses 15 through 16. He says, The God 
before whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac walked, the God who has been my shepherd all my life long to this day, the angel who has redeemed me from all evil, bless the boys, and in them let my name be carried on, the name of my fathers Abraham and Isaac. Let them grow into a multitude in the midst of the earth. So he calls, this is the God before whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac walked. Like he, they were in his presence, they're walking um, with God's eye on them. <clears throat> and then he calls them the God who's been my shepherd all my life long to this day. And if you go back and read Jacob's story of just all the stuff he went through, and you would think like there would be many moments that he might say, God, where are you? Why are things going this way? Why have I lost my son? Why am I getting, having to go over and live with my Uncle Laban for 20 years? Like, Why am I getting cheated by my Uncle Laban? And all these things that happened to him, you think, where is God? Now he sees at the end of his life, God, my shepherd, you've been with me every day, the whole time, up until this day right now. We're in Egypt. We had to leave the promised land, but you've been with me. You're here even now. And he has this, this great faith. And he calls it, says, the angel who has redeemed me from all evil. And you remember when he was leaving the land of Canaan to go stay with his uncle Laban, there's angels there and God appears to him. And then when he's coming back from there, he sees angels again and he wrestles with uh, God in the night who comes to him in, the, in this form, this physical form. And so he's seeing, like, there's been God's presence with me in whatever form, either through his angel messengers or himself, has been present with me <coughs> and has saved me from all evil. And he's saying, this is the God that I want to bless these boys, he says. And then in 17 through 20, uh, we see that uh, it's kind of like, seems like the boys are kind of sitting on Joseph's legs, uh, sitting in front of him. And then he's like, who are these boys? And his eyesight is dim. Remember his father Isaac's eyesight was bad. He was kind of going blind at the end of his life. And Jacob tricked him to get Esau's blessing. And Jacob has kind of the same thing going on. He's like, who, who's here with you? And he's like, oh, this is my son, Ephraim and Manasseh. And he's all excited. Well, I didn't, I, didn't even, I didn't expect to see you, Joseph. And I never expected to see your grandkids. This is amazing. And he's you know, probably met him before. He just can't see him there. Um, but so Joseph seems takes him off his knees and bows down before Jacob. And then Jacob has his hand on him. But he goes like this. Joseph sets him up right. Okay, put the older one here. Put the younger one here. And so... No, older one here, younger one here. So if you guys are Jacob, his right hand's going to be on the older one, left hand's going to be on the younger one. But then Jacob does this weird thing, where he switches his hands, and then Joseph, I don't know, he like he's laying down, but then he kind of like peeks up. No, no, Dad, no, it's got to be the other way. And then he's like, No, no, this is how it's going to be. That I, you know, how could he know this? How could he know Ephraim is going to be the greater of these two? We were talking in our gospel fluency group on Thursday that it must have been God had showed him something of the future of what's going to happen here Um, and Ephraim does become the leading tribe if you remember well you probably don't remember because I didn't even know this I looked it up so uh, Joshua the book of Joshua he's the one who actually leads them into the promised land Joshua is from the tribe of Ephraim and so one of the first rulers of the nation, not rulers, leaders of the nation of Israel, Moses passes it on to Joshua. Joshua is from the tribe of Ephraim, and Ephraim becomes um, a pretty big, <coughs> important tribe until the tribe of Judah takes over as the, the kingly tribe. And then in verse 21, Jacob gives Joseph the, pro- the promise that God gave to him. Israel said to Joseph, Behold, I'm about to die, but God will be with you and will bring you again to the land of your fathers. 
He has this full faith. God's going to be with you. Even when you're in this land of Egypt, and God is going to bring you back. He told me he's going to be with me. He's going to be with you. And he told me he's going to bring us back. And so he's going to do it. And he has this full faith, passing this promise on. But what stuck out to me the most is in verse 5. I just love what Jacob says in 48 verse 5. We already read it once. And, and now your two sons were born to you in the land of Egypt, before I came to you in Egypt are mine. Ephraim and Manasseh shall be mine, as Reuben and Simeon are mine. And when we think about ourselves uh, as people who are following God today, it's like, uh, how, what does this all this matter for us? But we are told that God adopts us into his family. God brings us into his family. As our father, he brings us in. And it's not that we're like, kind of like these half kids. It's like, okay, like you guys are adopted, so I don't care about you as much. But no, we're told that we are given the same status as Jesus. His beloved son is a beloved, eternal, perfect son who's been with him from the beginning of time. And we're given the same status. And he, uh, it's not because of anything that we've done. Ephraim and Manasseh aren't adopted in because of anything that they've done, but they're adopted in because of Joseph. Joseph's life and how he's saved this family. And Joseph gets elevated to this place, even though he's the second youngest, gets elevated to this place of prominence. And he says, I'm going to adopt your two sons now make them full sons because of what you have done. It's because of Joseph's actions. And we're adopted in God's family, not because of what we have done. Ephraim and Manasseh are made full sons based on the righteous life of another, on Joseph. And we're made full sons and daughters based on the righteous life of another, based on Jesus, that we are redeemed out of our sins and forgiven and brought in and made full sons and daughters of God. Not half sons, not half daughters. We share the same status as Jesus and God's beloved son with whom he's well pleased. And God says to us, you are mine. You are mine as Jesus is mine in the same way that I love Jesus in the same way that he has an inheritance, in the same way that uh, I'm faithful to him and love him and cherish him and am well pleased with him, I, you are mine as Jesus is mine. We're God's family, God's sons and daughters, loved, cherished, treasured, embraced, delighted in. When we trust in Jesus, we're given that status. We share in the blessing and the inheritance as full sons and daughters with Jesus, that we're going to have this new creation, resurrection bodies. All that is Jesus's is going to be ours too because we are full sons and daughters with him. So that's as God's family. First part of our big idea is God's family must live worthy of our calling. So we are God's family. If we've trusted in Jesus, we're adopted into that family. It's through him that we become uh, sons and daughters of God. But the second part is we must live worthy of our calling chapter 49 and here Jacob blesses each of his sons which you know we may think of a blessing as kind of a like fully positive thing um, but he gives some evaluation of their lives like they, they aren't all that great of guys and we've read stories that have shown that they're kind of messed up um, some of them even in the book of Genesis even as we've <coughs> been in these chapters um, and they're prophetic, their prophecies, and sometimes we think of prophecies as like, oh, that's all about the future, it's all about predictions, but when you look at like the prophetic books in the Bible, it's both evaluative and predictive, that when the prophets, they're not just like, okay, you know, all of a sudden just something popped in my head and now I see what's going to happen, it's like they're looking at Israel and they're seeing, man, this is where everybody's at, people are going astray, they're not worshiping God with their full hearts, they're 
things are messed up here, and God told us what's going to happen when we do that. And so then they could evaluate Israel. Look, this is the issue. You, there's problems here. And because of that, this is what God says is going to happen. And at the same time, God would give them visions of specific ways that it was going to come about in the future. And it seems there's a mix of this here. There's, it's evaluative, evaluating where their lives and predicting based on that, but also getting some insights, God-given insights about the future. And it's not set in stone. God's prophecies are never set in stone. It's where when God says, this is going to happen. If you remember in Jonah, Jonah says, 40 days, town of Nineveh is going to be destroyed. Um, and then what happens? They repent, and God doesn't destroy it. And so this, they have an opportunity to turn their lives around. But first we see Reuben. We're not going to dig super deep into all of them. Verse 2 Chapter 49, Jacob says, Assemble and listen, O sons of Jacob. Listen to Israel, your father. And so he starts with Reuben, his oldest. Verse 3, Reuben, you're my firstborn, my might and the first fruits of my strength, preeminent in dignity and preeminent in power, unstable as water. You shall not have preeminence, because you went up to your father's bed. Then you defiled it. He went up to my couch. There's a story back in Genesis 35, verse 22, where Jacob... Uh, Reuben goes up and sleeps with one of Jacob's wives, like kind of a way to, who knows what he's doing, trying to usurp the family authority, trying to kind of take over or whatever, but because of that, he loses this spot as the firstborn, as the one who's going to be the one that the whole family looks to after Jacob's gone. And he's called unstable as water, and him sleeping with Jacob's wife is disloyal. <coughs> then we have Simeon and Levi, verses 5 to 7. Simeon and Levi are brothers. Weapons of violence are their swords. Let my soul not come come not into their counsel. O oh my glory, be not joined to their company. For in their anger they kill men, and in their willfulness they hamstrung oxen. Cursed be their anger, for it is fierce, and their wrath, for it is cruel. I'll divide them in Jacob and scatter them in Israel. Now Simeon and Levi are violent and cursed. And we see them uh, earlier in Genesis that there's a story where they're um, their sister gets raped, and then they go and they kill a whole town because of it in this burst of anger. Um, and you could say, like, okay, there's there's a real, he calls it, you know, violent tendencies here and anger. Um, but there's another side to it where there's this zeal for righteousness in them. Like, this was not right. Something needs to be done about this. And Jacob doesn't really do anything, and they're like, what do you think? We should just let... Our sister be a prostitute, we need to do something about this. And it's like, we did something about it, you didn't. And so there's this zeal for righteousness, and that could come out you know, violently and controlling and anger. But on the other side, these guys, uh, Levi, at least, becomes the, the tribe that the priests come out of, that are watching over the tabernacle and taking care of the temple. And they have you know, people that really need to be serious about God is righteous and holy, and there's a zeal that they want to protect that, protect God's name in the community. And actually from the tribe of Levi comes Moses, and other names such as Aaron and Miriam, Moses' siblings, and then Samuel, Ezekiel, and Malachi. And so it's not that, you know, Levi, you know, I'm just done with you, I'm done using you, but it's possible for them to change their direction and for people in them to go a different way than what their family trajectory has been. And then Judah... Verses 8 through 12, he says, Judah, your brothers shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's sons shall bow down before you. Judah is a lion's cub. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He stooped down, he crouched as a lion, and as a lioness, who dares rouse him? 
My scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute comes to him. To him shall be the obedience of the peoples, binding his foal to the vine and his donkey's colt to the foal's <coughs> vine. He has washed his garments in wine and his vesture in the blood of grapes. His eyes are darker than wine and his teeth whiter than milk. Now, that might be a little, if you're looking to, I don't know, score some points with your husband or wife or something, you could uh, write verse 12 on it. Your, your eyes are darker than wine, your teeth whiter than milk. Just, you know, hey, Thanksgiving, Christmas coming up. You can, you know, put that on a mug or something. You know, it could be a good good wall, wall art. But, you know, there's some poetry here talking about Judah. Uh, I mean, if we, as we've gone through this story, Judah is... Perhaps the character or one of the characters has gone through the biggest transformation. We saw him just this guy who goes and sleeps with a prostitute who ends up being his daughter-in-law. And it's like, okay, that uh, now at, by the end of the story, he's sacrificing himself in the place of one of his brothers to become a slave in his place. So there's this big uh, uh, transformation that's happened in him. He lost two of his sons, we saw, because of their evil, and that might be something that woke him up a little bit, like, man, this got to take this seriously, walking with God. But the summary of Judah is that he's a lion worthy to lead. And you may, that may trigger in you that we, Jesus is called the lion of Judah. Um, the, and he's the lamb who was slain. And so Judah, out of Judah comes uh, David, the tribe of Judah comes King David, and then eventually Jesus comes out of that tribe too. And so Judah becomes the king tribe eventually that Israel's kings come out of. <coughs> and then Zebulun and Issachar, uh, they have pretty short verses. Zebulun, verse 13, Zebulun shall dwell at the shore of the sea. He shall become a haven for ships. And his border shall be at Sidon. And not much to report there, basically seaman, a seaman. Issachar, uh, verse 14, is a strong donkey, crouching between the sheepfolds. He saw that a resting place was good, that the land was pleasant, so he bowed his shoulder to bear and became a servant at forced labor. It's described as a strong donkey. I'm not sure if that's a compliment or not. I think it might be. Um, but it seems like he's kind of like, oh, this place is good. Like, I'm not sure I'll just work for somebody else to live here. Um, and then Dan, verses 16 to 17, Dan shall judge his people. He's one of the tribes of Israel. Dan shall be a serpent in the way, a viper by the path that bites the horse's heels, that his rider falls backward. And so Dan's like this judging serpent. You know, he's just using poetic language to give this character. He's kind of like judges things, but he also kind of bites a bit. It seems like ver verse four eighteen is this pause. He says, I wait for your salvation, O Lord. It seems like as he's evaluating some of his sons that uh, there's this sense that, like, man, they're going to really need God. Like, there's some of them have gotten in a good place, but some of these, I don't know what's going to come become of them. And he, he's he knows God's going to be faithful. And I summarize that verse as grace. Grace was needed to get them here, and is still going to be needed going forward. He's kind of like you know, Lord have mercy. Like I wait for your salvation for my that you're you're going to have to work in my sons if this is all going to happen. And Gad verse nineteen. Raiders shall raid Gad, but he shall raid at their heels. So he's he raids, but he also gets raided. Verse 20, Asher's food shall be rich, and he shall yield royal delicacies. 21, Naphtali is a doe let loose that bears beautiful fawns. In verse 22, we hear of Joseph. Him and Judah have the biggest sections. 
Joseph is a fruitful bough, a fruitful bough by a spring, his branches run over the wall. The archers bitterly attacked him, shot at him, and harassed him severely. Yet his bow remained unmoved, his arms remained agile by the hands of the mighty one of Jacob. From there is the shepherd, the stone of Israel. By the God of your father who will help you, by the Almighty who will bless you with blessings of heaven above, blessings of the deep that crouches beneath, blessings of the beasts and of the womb, the blessings of your father are mighty beyond the blessings of my parents, up to the bounties of the everlasting hills. May they be on the head of Joseph, and on the brow of him who is set apart from his brothers. And so, this talks about Joseph went through this big thing. His brothers sold him into slavery, tried to get rid of him. And it's like these archers tried to attack him, we're told. He bitterly attacked, shot at them, harassed. And yet he remained unmoved. His arms remained agile by... And how did that happen? By the hands of the mighty one of Jacob, the shepherd, the stone of Israel, that God was with Joseph. And Joseph um, was used by God to save his whole family. And now, in some ways, Jacob's talking to his two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh. This is like a blessing on them. And he's saying, you know, your dad's blessing is you know, beyond my parents' blessing that he um, has so much on him. God has used him in so many ways. And then Benjamin... We're told in verse 27, is a ravenous wolf in the morning devouring the prey and the evening dividing the spoil. And so verse 28 gives a little summary. All these are the twelve tribes of Israel. <coughs> this is what their father said to them as he blessed them, blessing each with the blessings suitable to him. And Joseph, Jacob's looking at his sons he gives them a blessing suitable to them. He's kind of evaluating, this is where you've been, this is where you're going based on that, and also with some sprinkled in, like things he could only know from God. And in some cases, the outlook doesn't look too great. But we need to remember, in our Gospel Fluency group, um, Nick was reminding us as we were reading this passage about, like, look where this whole family has been. Like, Abraham, look where he started, and look like where he was at the end. Of He was giving off his wife and saying, she's my sister, and letting her go, and potentially sleep with other people, like uh, almost forfeiting the whole promise that he's supposed to be getting a son through this wife. And look where Jacob himself started. And even in these chapters where Judah started, that they can start in this place and they can come to a point where it's like, okay, you're worthy of being the king tribe. Jacob, you're now saying these blessings over your kids and you're saying this really great affirmation of faith. You've been my shepherd all my life, God. And one of the things about this book that I hope that it helps us do is cherishing God's grace because of his commitment and faithfulness even to sinful, broken people. All of us are sinful, broken people. But we can cherish God's grace in that he's committed and he is faithful even in spite of that. <coughs> and then the last verses of this chapter we hear of Jacob's death. Verse 29, Then he commanded them and said to them, I am to be gathered to my people, Bury me with my fathers in the cave that is in the field of Ephron the Hittite, in the cave that is in the field of Machpelah, to the east of Mamre, in the land of Canaan, which Abraham bought with the field from Ephron the Hittite, to possess as a burying place. There they buried Abraham and Sarah his wife. There they buried Isaac and Rebekah his wife. And there I buried Leah. And the field and the cave that is in it were bought from the Hittites. When Jacob finished commanding his sons, he drew up his feet into the bed, and breathed his last, and was gathered to his people.
So let me return to the vase of water. When God looks at you, does he see a glass half empty or a glass half full? Does he see and look and say, I see how much you filled it up and I'm really excited about that? Or does he see, I see how far short you fell from filling up your life, whatever it was, uh, I was supposed to do this, I was supposed to do that, and I didn't, or I did this with impure motives, or I, you know, got part of the way, but I didn't finish it all. Does he see just how far you fell short? And the correct answer, that God is neither uh, a glass half empty, nor a glass half full, um, but he sees the whole glass. And we see this throughout all of scripture, that God celebrates what's there, you know, some, if we're glass half empty people, we just see this and we kind of forget what is there. Like, I did this thing, you know, I tried, set out to, you know, I don't know if anybody here is trying to do this, run a marathon, but I set out to run a marathon, and, you know, I could only do a half marathon, and so, you know, I'm a failure. Instead of saying, like, wow, I did a half marathon. Like, that's pretty crazy and exciting. I didn't think I'd be able to do that. And I was able to do that. I didn't get the full, maybe next time, but a half marathon, that was really exciting. But we can tend to see what's missing and forget about how far we got. But we can also go to the other side where we're just seeing, like, well, you know what? I did this and I did that, and I know I didn't do these things, but, you know, who cares? You know, people just have to get over that, and God will get over it too. And we can kind of, like, look at one to the exclusion of the other, like, you know, I, I'm a pretty good person. And so, the, you know, that outweighs the emptiness, and so the empty parts. And so, you know, God, God likes me for the good parts, um, and he ignores the bad parts because they uh, outweigh the other parts. But God celebrates what's there. He celebrates how far we've come. You know, like, that's great, and, you know, pronounces blessing over us and says, I'm excited about it, and I love what's there. But he also, also helps us and strengthens us to fill it up the rest of the way. That He says, like, I'm loving how far you've got, um, and I want to help you get the rest of the way. And like, So let's celebrate what's there, and I want to help you keep filling it up. And he promises that the good work he's begun into us, the good work, uh, Philippians 1.6, the good work he's begun of filling us up, of filling us, our life up with his righteousness and his character and his holiness, that he's going to bring that to completion on the day that Jesus comes back. And so God sees both. He sees, like, I love how far you've got, I love how you've relied on me, and how much you've grown, and I want to keep helping you and supporting you to bring you the rest of the way, and we're going to complete this work together. And that's how God sees both of them. You read in Titus 2, that we maybe think, like, oh, you know, like grace just means God kind of overlooks our mistakes. But Titus 2 talks about how grace trains us for godliness. It both gives us forgiveness. We get God's undeserved forgiveness, we got, get God's undeserved training for, for godliness, that it's not just, okay, you, you, you did that, you know, you were uh, this week, like, well, half, half of your deeds were righteous and motivated out of love for other people, but the other half weren't that great. There's forgiveness for this, grace forgives what we're missing, but grace also is training us to, to fill it up, to make all of our deeds out of a loving heart and for righteousness. <coughs> and each of the sons of Jacob is given the blessing and inheritance according to their character. They're all part of this family, chosen by God, but they have different roles and different responsibilities. And as part of God's family and Jesus' kingdom, we're going to be evaluated based on our faithfulness at the end of our life. That we're told we're going to stand before Jesus 
It's not a moment to be afraid of or to cower in fear or to be in shame that there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And when we stand there, the goal isn't condemnation if you're in Christ, but commendation, that he's going to commend us for the deeds we've done. He's going to say, look how much you filled up. Like, I'm going to commend you for those things. I'm going to reward you uh, based on them. And that's the purpose of determining our reward in the inheritance. And if we've trusted in Jesus, we're God's family and we're God's people. We'll be evaluated at the end of our lives. And our roles and responsibilities in the new creation will differ. But perhaps this is the first time you're hearing something like this, that, what, I'm going to be evaluated? I thought forgiveness, so I won't be evaluated. It's not evaluating what you did wrong, it's evaluating what you did right and rewarding you on it. But I think this can be a concept that's difficult for us to, to get right, of like, I'm going to be evaluated, so I need to be really scared now. Or like, evaluating, that doesn't sound like grace. You know, we can kind of fall on these two different ends. So how do we misunderstand being held accountable by Jesus and being evaluated like Joseph's sons? Well, one, we can fail to acknowledge our limits. There's four things here. We fail to acknowledge our limits because we, in this day, you flip on your TV at night and you hear about a hundred issues that you know as a Christian you should care about. Kids starving somewhere and war happening here, people without homes here, there's people freezing down in Chicago here. It's like, I need to be doing something about this and I'm not. And so I feel horrible about myself and when I stand before Jesus, he's going to say, you should feel horrible about yourself because you didn't take care of all those needs that I revealed to you in the world. And whenever I go to the cashier and they ask, you know, you want to donate a dollar you know, to kids starving or to the homeless or something, I always have this little moral dilemma like, <coughs> if I say no, is that saying I don't care about kids who have food? And it's like, but, you know, I don't really feel super burdened about this right now. And, and I've come to a place, you know, still have the moral dilemma sometimes, that uh, I've accepted that I'm giving my money and my time to life, in my life to things that matter uh, to God. And it's not necessarily those things, but I have limits on how much time and money and energy I have. And so it's okay for me to say no to this thing that has been made of given an opportunity, I can say, no, you know, my money's going here. I really care about this thing. and I, So I can say no to that. And we fail to understand our limits, that we're limited people. We can't take care of all the needs in the world. And so we can feel afraid that Jesus is just going to you know, clamp down on us because we didn't take care of all the starving people in the world, all the homeless people in the world or whatever. Um, but we have to acknowledge our limits. Second, we fail to embrace and and value the opportunity before us. We fail to embrace and value the opportunity before us. We fail to embrace and value the opportunity before us. Because you already have tons of opportunities to do what God has called you to. We want to live worthy of our calling. And the most w worthy way to live of our calling, of our calling to be God's sons and daughters, is to reflect what God is like to the people in your lives. And to reflect what God's like to the people in your life. That's how we live worthy of our calling. That's what Ephesians 5.1 says. You know, Beloved children, um, imitate your father. Imitate what your father's like. You have these relationships, family, friends, neighbors, coworkers, and in them are you reflecting what God is like. You know, so we don't have to solve all the problems of the world. Uh, you don't even have to solve the problems of anybody's life. It's just like, am I reflecting the love and mercy and patience and gentleness that God has reflected to me. And that's how we live worthy of our calling, is that we, Ephesians 5.1, beloved children, we imitate our Father. 
Thirdly, we fail to believe God is gracious. We fail to believe God is gracious. And so we think, when I stand before Jesus, or you know, any given day, at the end of the day, God just sees how half full my cup is. And I think about Hudson and him learning to walk. And it's like, he's still not walking perfect. Like He kind of bobbles around, and it's kind of like, well, Hudson, you're half full, buddy. When you get it full, when you're walking you're perfect and you can run with a perfect stride, you know, like your feet are landing right and you're not doing too, being too clumpy or whatever, then I'm going to celebrate you. And it's like, I think for Hudson, as I'm, he's learning to walk, it's like every step of the way, every little millimeter, he fills it up. It's like, yes, you know, let's go, buddy, but I'm also working with him so he can eventually run. It's like, you're not quite there. I'm not going to just say like, you know what, it's okay that, you know, you just kind of like roll around on the ground and we'll just leave you there. That's fine. Like, that's not okay, right? I want him to fully, fully run, fully walk and walk properly. And so it's like, I, you know, good job, buddy. You've made this progress. And it's like, I'm, we're keeping working with them. And it's not like, I'm just pleased with you and I'm rejecting you and call me when you get it good enough. And it's like, we kind of think that God is so ungracious that he just says, you know what? I know you tried hard today. I know you tried hard this week. It's just not good enough. So call me when you can do it all perfectly. It's like, no, God's gracious. And he, so he celebrates us and gives us affirmation even when we don't deserve it. You know, we don't, didn't do it perfectly. But he still um, lavishes his love on us. And lastly, we live for our identity instead of from it. We live for our identity instead of from it. Because we need to live from our identity as God's sons and daughters and not live to make that, to earn that for ourselves. Like, I'm going to do this for the purpose of becoming God's son or daughter. I'm going to do this for the purpose of being forgiven. We say, no, I'm going to live from a place that I'm already loved, I'm already cherished, I'm already treasured. And we reverse the big idea. The big idea <coughs> was as God's family we must live worthy of our calling, and we reverse that, and we say, we must live worthy to be God's family. No, it's as God's family, as people who've been adopted because of what Jesus has done, who've been sealed with the love of the Holy Spirit, as God's family, as God's sons and daughters, we live from that. We Now we live worthy of our calling. We don't live worthy to become God's family. And we prove ourselves to already be God's sons and daughters when we reflect His character. And when you... Think about you know, those people around you. God's put in your life that you have this opportunity. You know, God, as God's family, we're called to live worthy of our calling. And we do that by reflecting his character. And you just have this, probably just a few people in your life. Like, okay, I have you know, my family. It's like you know, one or three or two or four people or whatever. You have your dad, your siblings. And it's not even like, okay, you know, I'm always 100% of the time like, doing this every day, but it's like, when I'm with them, I'm going to reflect his character. <coughs> when you're at work, when you interact with neighbors, it's like, are you reflecting his character? And that's how we live worthy of our calling and um, doing what he's asked us to do, of showing his love to others. And as we close, uh, there's this really cool image um, that Bob shared on Thursday with our Gospel Fluency group of the, the Christian life is often uh, call a faith, like a run, a race. We're running this race. And Bob talked about like, you know, what's it like to 
I mean, when I was running cross country, I was always horrible because I was bad at it, and it was always tiring. So I'm like trudging up these hills. Oh. Like I look super tired. But as soon as you like hear the crowds, and it's all of a sudden, oh yeah, like you get a little more energy. Like you know, people are going to be seeing you. And it wasn't just a, like putting on a show. It was like you actually can like feel it. Your teammates cheering for you, or if your parents are there, you know, people that matter to you cheering for you. And it's like you get this little pumped up thing. And it's like knowing that Jesus is looking over us and is watching for us. He's going to meet us at the end of that race. Isn't this thing of like, I just am so not looking forward to seeing him at the end of this because it's going to be horrible. It's more like he has this smiling, love-filled face. He died for us. Our Father's watching us as we run this race. And it's just like, man, that just is like exciting of running it for him, of getting at the end and getting to see him, being like, you know, how did I do? And him, you know, embracing us and taking us in um, at the end of that race and, and just showering his affection on us and bringing us into his kingdom and saying, like, okay, like you're here, you made it. And that's just you know, something exciting for us all as we run this race as a family and as we live as a family of God, living it worthy of our calling, reflecting his character to one another um, and those around us. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the truth that we do not have to work and earn our place in your family, that we are placed into your family because of Jesus, because of what he's done. But you call us to live worthy of our calling. You call us to reflect your character. So would you help us? Would you make us people who do that? Uh, including forgiving one another when we fall short, reflecting your, your grace to each other and how we forgive, reflecting your grace to each other and how we help each other get out of sin, reflecting your grace to each other as we spur one another on to good works until the final day when we meet you face to face. In your son's name we pray. Amen. Amen.